Thank you, Bianca, for that uh, very clear reading. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that if we are to hear your voice this morning, we are fully dependent on your Holy Spirit. Please pour out your Spirit upon us in fullness that our deaf ears might hear, that our blind eyes might see, and that our dull minds might be gloriously renewed. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Now, uh, as I'm sure you know by now in our series, we're looking for a cure for the weightlessness of God that is so apparent in the lives of many Christians today. And I want to start this morning with a puzzle. Uh, Because it seems that God has become weightless at a time when Christianity is growing faster in Africa than just about anywhere else. Now you wouldn't expect that, would you? So why is it? Well, I wouldn't claim for one second to have all the answers, but I suspect that part of the answer lies in the fact that the spiritual revival that is sweeping across Africa at the moment has given rise to two distinct movements amongst professing Christians. So on the one hand, there are enormous numbers of people who have um, a hunger for God but a dislike of doctrine. In other words, they're genuinely seeking an experience of God, but they are very reluctant indeed to give a coherent explanation for that experience. In other words, the the benchmark of whether their experience of God is truly authentic is not how well they know their Bibles, it's not that. No, it's how they feel when they go to church. Uh, they would say, if we asked them, how I feel at church is more important to me than what the Bible actually says. Now then, on the other hand, there are growing numbers of people in churches who are reacting against that first group. And they're really hungry for Bible teaching. They're very serious about Bible study, but they are intensely suspicious about any kind of emotional response. And I guess churches like that often feel more like a school or a college than a place where God is meeting with his people individually and personally. People may be terribly excited about what they're learning, but nobody is saying with Isaiah, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. Can I say that people at both of those two extremes have made God weightless? Now our Bible passage uh, this morning takes us right to the heart of the problem Because, of course, the Psalms force us to find the balance. 
Because psalms are songs. And uh, singing about God is obviously not the same thing as a lecture in biblical theology. Because when we sing, our our emotions are involved. We should actually feel the truth. The truth should, should touch us rather like an electric shock. And can I say that if it doesn't, that's probably a sign we haven't truly grasped it. Jonathan Edwards was uh, ministering in North America at the same time as George Whitfield in the United Kingdom. Uh, the two men were firm friends, and both men were used by God during the tremendous spiritual revival in the 18th century known as the Great Awakening. And uh, speaking about this tension between knowledge and feelings in the life of the Christian, Jonathan Edwards made this stunning statement. It's on the back of the pink question sheet. He said this, the religion which God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull and lifeless spiritual resolve raising us but a little above a state of indifference. God in his word greatly insists on it that we be in good earnest, fervent in spirit and our hearts vigorously engaged. Now I know the language is a little bit old fashioned but I'm sure you get the point. Knowledge on its own, says Jonathan Edwards, is not enough The acid test of whether we've really understood something about God is whether at some point we're actually moved either to tears of repentance or to to joy and, and to thankfulness and to praise. There must be emotion, but the emotional response is always based on knowledge. It's based on what we know about God from Scripture, what we know about his character, uh, what we know about his plans and purposes, and supremely, of course, what we know about the finished work of Christ on the cross. So the knowledge comes first, and the healthy emotional response, which demonstrates that God is not actually weightless in our lives after all, that emotional response flows directly from the knowledge. Now Psalm 139 is an absolutely perfect example of the balance we're trying to seek. Bible experts are all agreed that this psalm is, quote, the most profound poem in all Hebrew literature. It's quite a claim, isn't it? The reason they say that, uh, say that is because this psalm is the most concise and compressed teaching on the character of Almighty God in the whole of the Old Testament. It's important to understand right at the beginning that character is a relationship word. So when we we talk about the character of God, uh, we're not simply admiring God from a distance. No, rather what we're doing is we're talking about what God is actually like. 
in his dealings with human beings. And this psalm gives us three marvellous truths, or if you prefer, doctrines, about God's character. And although these doctrines as such are not mentioned specifically by name, the experts have given them labels. Now we're not going to spend long on the labels this morning. Uh, They're just a very convenient way of summarising important truths about God's character. I'm simply going to mention these labels to you so that you're familiar with the words and will recognise them next time you bump into them. And then we're going to spend most of our time thinking about what David actually says about God's character in the psalm and how he responds to it and what that means for us. But first the labels. Uh, Verses 1 to 6 describe the omniscience of God. Uh, If you're writing that, I'm not sure of the spelling, it's omniscience, one word, omniscience, omniscience. In other words, um, those verses are making the point that God knows everything about everybody. That's the first label. Label number two in verses 7 to 12 is the omnipresence of God, which means that God is fully present everywhere, all the time. And then thirdly, verses 13 to 18 give us a picture of God's omnipotence, or if you prefer, the almightiness of God, demonstrated here in the intricate and perfect creation of a human being. So those are the uh, three labels, the three big truths about the character of God in Psalm 139. But uh, as I was preparing, um, I first of all had to wrestle with a mystery. Because some of the experts, you'll be surprised to learn, stop their commentary at verse 18. They actually don't know what to do with verses 19 to 22. Of course, it's not hard to see why. Uh, Just when we're uh, enjoying this wonderful description of God's character in the first 18 verses, suddenly we read verse 19. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. And we say, well, Where on earth did that come from? In fact, uh, as I say, one commentator just gave up at uh, verse 18 as if the next four verses don't exist. Now, we can't do that for two reasons. At first, the unity of the whole psalm won't allow it. I wonder if you notice this, it's very striking. There is an obvious unity to the whole psalm because the psalmist uses exactly the same words in verse 1 and again in verse 23. In other words, verse 1 and verse 23 are like bookends on a bookshelf. They belong together. Come with me to verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Now look at verse 23. Can we all see verse 23 in our Bibles? Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
And notice something else. Notice that what is a statement in verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me, has become a prayer by the time we get to verse 23. And that should make us ask the question, if we're reading this intelligently, why the change? And it means we have to look in between verses 1 to 23 to find the answer. So, simply to remove verses 19 to 22, because they make us feel just a trifle uncomfortable, is actually to remove vital evidence from the scene. That's the first reason. The second reason that you can't ignore those four verses is because they're actually the reason David wrote the psalm in the first place. You know, David didn't just leap out of bed one morning and say, do you know what, I think I'm going to write a psalm about the character of God. He didn't do that. Now, verse 20 is telling us that a particular group of men had risen up and they were causing trouble. And so David's word uh, to God in verse 20 is a word of complaint about them. He says, they speak of you, God, with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. So there were obviously some powerful and highly influential men, probably in King David's court. They were speaking openly against God and their intentions were evil. Got it? Now, of course, we're seeing this sort of thing in South Africa more and more, aren't we? Increasingly, so-called Christian schools are pushing Christianity to one side and embracing things that God hates, particularly, I think, around issues of human sexuality. And even some churches have discarded Christian ethics in the interest, of course, of being politically correct. Now, that is the kind of thing that King David is having to deal with here. And the question is, the question coming out of the psalm, is how do we respond when God's name and God's cause are under attack? Because that's what this psalm is actually all about. And I suppose the most striking thing when I read it was that David doesn't retaliate. I think that's important. Because there's no doubt that although God is the main focus of the attack by these powerful men, David is also personally threatened. Well, of course he is. He's the Lord's anointed. Now, I don't know what you're like uh, in a situation like this. But uh, as I was thinking about it, I have to confess, when I'm under attack especially if it has to do with matters concerning the church, I find it very hard indeed to resist the urge to strike back. David does not do that. He does something different. He resolutely turns his attention away from the troublemakers and instead he he meditates on what he knows about the character of God. And that meditation leads him to three important conclusions. And the first of those conclusions is, there is no escape. 
I wonder if you notice that the first six verses in the psalm are packed full of verbs that describe the fact that God knows everything about every one of us. Just, just look at it. Uh, David says, you have searched me, verse 1. You know me, verse 1. You perceive my thoughts from afar, verse 2. You discern, verse 3. You are familiar with, verse 3. You know my words even before I speak them, verse 4. And the point is that God has this comprehensive knowledge, not only of David, but of each one of us, inside and out. Not only our daily routines and our lifestyles and our habits, verses 2 and 3, but even our thoughts. In fact, the idea in the psalm is that God knows us better than we know ourselves. We're living in an age, aren't we, where people are jealous about their personal data, their personal information. They expect to be able to keep their lives secret from the rest of the world. That's one of the reasons why we have a Data Protection Act. Well, quite clearly, the Data Protection Act doesn't apply to God. Of course, he knows the things that uh, we are not ashamed about. Well, that's not so bad. But he also knows the things we all hope nobody else can see. Our jealous thoughts, our anger, our lying, our cheating. Oh dear. But that's not all. Because God not only knows everything about us, he's also with us wherever we go. I think that's rather surprising, isn't it? Because we might think that knowing everything about us, that he would be rather put off. That he might want to spend his time in rather more agreeable company. Apparently not. So I love verse 7. Can you see verse 7? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the answer, of course, is nowhere. The word presence is an interesting word. It literally means face. So there's absolutely nowhere I can go, nowhere I can run and hide where I am not before the face of God. Whether like Jonah, um, I try to hide physically by emigrating and starting a new life overseas. Or whether I take refuge in the darkness of, of alcohol or drugs or sex or career or money. Whatever I do, I am always in God's face. Because whether we're conscious of it or not, the Christian life is a life that is lived in its entirety before the face of God. In uh, 1907, uh, an Englishman by the name of Francis Thompson wrote a marvellous poem called The Hound of Heaven. I wonder if any of you have read it. The poem is significant because it's based on verses 7 to 12 of Psalm 139. Uh, 
Thompson had been studying to become a medical doctor, but in his 20s he became an opium addict and for many years his life was a complete shambles. But in those years he had this extraordinary sense of being unable to escape from God. And uh, talking about how he, he tried to run away and hide from God, this is how he begins the poem. He says, I, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And then as the poem continues, there's 182 lines, so it takes a bit of a time to read. But as the poem continues, he he says that no matter how hard he tried, he was never quite able to escape from God. The hound of heaven was always on his tail. And uh, when eventually uh, God caught up with him, which he did... Uh, Thompson realised that all those years of running away were actually just a tragic mistake. Because in the end, there's no escape. Not for him. Not for you. Not for me. So that is the first conclusion that David reached in his morning quiet time. There is no escape from God. The second conclusion that David reached was there is nothing to fear. How do you respond to the God who knows absolutely everything about you, who's with you wherever you go, whatever you're doing? The answer really, I suppose, depends on your attitude to God, doesn't it? So there will be those people who read Psalm 139 and they say in their souls, I don't like this. This feels intrusive, it feels claustrophobic, it feels oppressive. But how does David respond? It's rather wonderful, isn't it? Because instead of seeing God's perfect knowledge of him as being a problem, he actually sees it as something infinitely comforting. Uh, Just look at verse 5. He says, You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. That last little phrase there, literally translated, is, you you cup your hand over me. It's the sort of thing you might do when a, a beautiful butterfly has come into your room and you want to put it where it belongs. And so what do you do? You you cup your hand over it ever so gently and you put it back outside. And the idea, I think, that the the awesome God who, who is in one sense lofty and unapproachable, he perceives our thoughts from afar, the idea that that same God also has his hand cut over David, protecting him from all harm, moves him to praise. Verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. 
And that idea, you see, of God's powerful protection on his life kind of gains momentum through the central section of the psalm. So, in verse 13, he he thinks about God's handiwork in making him. You knit me together in my mother's womb. The scientists tell us that in the human body there are 60 trillion cells. Quite a lot of cells, that, isn't it? A hundred thousand miles of nerve fibre and 60,000 miles of blood vessels. David obviously didn't have our scientific knowledge, but he, he looked at the intricacy of his own body and he understood that it, was, that it was all perfectly patterned and prepared by God in the, the embryo when he was in his mother's womb. And the wonderful intricacy of every detail in God's design from his from his eye colour to his IQ, moves him to say in verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What's he really saying there? He's saying that if Almighty God has designed our bodies as perfectly as that, and he has, then absolutely nothing in our lives is outside God's control. Nothing. And that's why he can say in verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He's thinking there of his childhood accidents and diseases, his years, no doubt, as a shepherd, um, his triumph over Goliath, those years of being hunted down by Saul like an animal and then of course his career as king with all of its marvellous high points and of course its notable failure with Bathsheba all of that written in God's book from the beginning and then as he thinks about that instead of being intimidated he finds it wonderfully comforting verse 17 How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Actually, there's an alternative reading, isn't there, at the bottom of the page. How precious concerning me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. There's nothing I need to be frightened of. Now, friends, can you see that that is an emotional reaction? But it's an emotional reaction based on knowledge. So I'm suggesting that the first 18 verses of this psalm are effectively David's quiet time. This was David meditating on the character of God and strengthened by that, he's now able to turn his attention back to the crisis in the royal court. And so his third conclusion is there is no compromise. We said at the beginning that uh, David starts in verse 19 with what to our ears sounds like a really grotesque prayer. If only you would slay the wicked. 
Now I'm sure that all of us know people who are hostile to God, hostile to God's people. I certainly do. We might not like them very much, but we don't necessarily have the courage to pray that God's going to come and strike them down. For one thing, uh, being good Christians, we remember that Jesus says that we are to love our enemies and we're to pray for those who persecute us. That's true. But, let's remember that Jesus also told us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Now when we pray that, friends, what are we actually asking for? Let's just sharpen our thinking. Turn quickly to Isaiah 11 on page 487. Isaiah chapter 11, page 487. This is one of the great prophecies about Jesus in Isaiah's book. Isaiah chapter 11, page 487, verse 1. It's talking about Jesus. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Pause on that. Because up to that point we're thinking, yep, This is the Jesus I know, this is the Jesus I've read about in the Gospels. Now, fasten your seatbelts and let's look at the next bit. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Oh dear. See, the uncomfortable truth is that Whilst God does not desire the death of the wicked, but rather that they should turn from their wickedness and live, a day is coming when Jesus returns and one of the things he will be doing on that day is slaying the wicked. That means he will destroy all those people who are hostile to God's cause and who've never repented. Come back to Psalm 139. Because like David, you see, we often find ourselves, don't we, surrounded by people who misuse the name of the Lord, um, people who twist the gospel to suit their own agenda, uh, people who are opposed to God's cause and God's people, in our own day. And I suppose the question is, when we find ourselves surrounded by people like that, how should we respond? This is fascinating. Notice what David says in verse 19, and think about it. He says, Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. In other words, what he actually is doing is separating himself from them. 
Now, being the passionate man that David was, I've no doubt that he spent many weeks, no doubt many months, trying to argue these people round. But in the end, having failed to win them round, and knowing that God knows all about them, and that God has the situation under perfect control, the only wise course is not retaliation, it is separation. Do you see? Because David will not compromise with wickedness. And so he separates himself from that influence. Now that's wise, isn't it? Of course, what that means in practice is going to be slightly different for each one of us. Uh, I don't know whether you noticed it, but this week I saw that the Gospel Coalition posted the remarkable testimony of a man called Beckett Cook. Ten years ago, Beckett Cook was uh, working in Hollywood. He was a practicing homosexual. And he had achieved considerable success in the fashion industry, uh, arranging photo shoots for magazines like Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. But ten years ago, he met Lord Jesus and immediately he separated himself from, not only actually from his gay lifestyle but also from the LGBT movement. Why did he do that? Well, this is what Beckett Cook said in the interview about the LGBT movement. Quote, In the last 20 years or so, there has been a huge push to make homosexuality sacred. It went from a sin to a sacrament. In other words, the LGBT movement in Hollywood, at least, has declared itself to be a religion. Now, if that is not misusing the name of the Lord, I don't know what is. That, of course, is the idea in the psalm, isn't it? David will not compromise with wickedness, and neither must we. But isn't it marvellous that David doesn't stop there? Uh, in the last two verses, he, he turns the spotlight on himself. I guess it would be entirely natural for him to be really upset by the attitude of the anti-God party scheming against him. But he's also determined not to compromise with wickedness in his own heart. And so he opens himself up, doesn't he, to a complete investigation by God. Verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Do you ever pray like that? See, when somebody has turned against us, it is terribly easy, isn't it, to pass off our angry thoughts about them as being entirely justified by their bad behaviour. But David knows perfectly well God sees through all that. And knowing that God sees everything, he gives himself entirely up to God's scrutiny. And he says, in effect, Lord, show me my wrong thoughts. Where necessary, help me to change my thinking. I give up myself completely to you. 
And I ask you to lead me in the way everlasting. That last phrase is terribly important, isn't it? Because unless the God of this psalm leads us in the way everlasting, there's no hope for any of us. So let's ask him to do it now. Will you stand and let's pray verses 23 and 24 together as it appears on the screen. And uh, perhaps just emphasise the personal pronouns together. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting.